0: Family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live! Come on! Be human and give! Give! Give!
1: <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human! Aho! Girls! Everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Runter, your host, and we look forward to two hours of improvisational conversation and jazz from the Sultan of Soul, Gus Mancini. And we'll open up the Woodstock Roundtable Jukebox to celebrate 50 years ago we landed on the moon. We have found some moon-related music that I don't think you've ever heard before. You might find rather interesting. Helping with the improvisation, not one but two co-hosts. She is our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate, Victoria Sullivan. He is on air, weekend warrior here at Radio Woodstock, Ron Van Warmer. We will have an existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. And among the topics to be discussed... Starbucks will stop selling newspapers. Why is that an important story? Hold em or fold them. Computers can now beat the best poker players. That wasn't supposed to happen. We'll tell you why. And I will tell a joke that we will analyze because it has to do with the beauty of ambiguity and the limitations of certainty. We prove that every week right here. Fasten your seatbelts. We hope it'll be a bumpy ride, certainly an interesting one. Join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. In the pod bay doors, Hal, let's get cranking here. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Doug. And uh, yeah. I don't hear her either. No, you Oh. There she is. Good morning, Ron. Doug. How are you? <laughs> here I am. Is <laughs>
2: Hal,
0: <laughs> Hal, Hal a little grumpy this uh, morning? Hal's, you know, cooperating as uh, best as he can this morning.
1: So I, I wasn't going to do this, but since next week we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the landing of the moon. That was pretty remarkable. Yeah both technically and metaphysically, I would say. Where we, Do you remember where
2: you were, Victoria, when we landed on the moon? I think I was in my parents' basement because that's where we kept <laughs> the TV. Mixing up the
1: medicine? <laughs> no, no, that we
2: we kept the TV in the basement. Ah. And since we knew there was going to be a moon landing and all my friends were excited about it, particularly, I have to say, my male friends. I mean, I guess somewhere in my foggy literary teenage consciousness, you know, there was this idea that that was an exciting thing but I had male friends that were like really looking forward to it and so I thought well I, I probably should watch this and I think my parents clumped down there into the basement too <laughs> it was very weird in my house mm-hmm. <laughs> <And> go on <laughs> <laughs> and we you know it's just and landing on the moon it, what the and I think I felt sort of excited but I can't say I felt that excited
0: Hmm. What, I what was really, I say? really I was lucky and unlucky. I was in New York City and uh visiting from Colorado. First time ever in New York City. Hmm. We'd taken the train, we came to New York City, we went to Radio City Music Hall that day, forgetting that the landing on the moon was happening, and we watched True Grit, which was just the John Wayne movie. Oh, oh. And uh, <laughs> we came out, and on the side of the RCA building, which is what it was at the time, was a big jumbotron screen, and thousands of people were out there watching. Cool. And as we came out, they were stepping down really? on the moon. Yeah. That was
2: probably a better way to watch it than basically. <laughs> my How could there be a better way to watch it than that,
0: other than being there live? It was pretty cool, except I missed the actual landing on the moon.
2: But I think it was the foot that was the thing. Yeah. The way they, they framed it and everything. It was the foot.
0: Yeah. And, that's, one, and I, one
2: and I, and I, I caught One small step for blah, blah, man, alarm, one one for a large one for mankind, Which is a I great pra- phrase. Yeah. Great. I think he had practiced that. <laughs> well, I should yeah. hope so.
1: I mean, that, sure. but that's pretty remarkable statement. Um, you know... And he didn't say one giant step for the United States, which thank was kind goodness, of nice. right?
2: And Although he didn't they, say God bless America. Yeah, they did plant a U.S. flag. Yes, they did. Well, we like to do that. We'll plant it anywhere. <laughs> but you're right. That is
1: remarkable, given how nationalistic, yeah, everybody's all nations still are. That this is once for for mankind, not yeah. for the United States. And, uh,
2: but maybe at that moment in time, we were thinking more as people on the planet, and as opposed to now. where We're over-nationalized now. I mean, worldwide. No. No. Um, <laughs>
1: you, but, well, no, I know what you're saying. Well, again, this is a big topic, and there are those who would agree with you, by the way. <laughs> Thank um, you. But uh, we, I, that's, it feels that way, because the Internet, the World Wide Web, Globalization, which is not a great word. Globalization, first of all, it's just this long noun. Anything ending in T-I-O-N tends to be blah, (laughs) (laughs) right? Because there's no movement to it. It's not a verb. Globalization. Globalization is literally hundreds of millions of people moving around the world in ways they never could before physically. Billions of us literally connecting with one another anywhere on the globe, through electronic signals, satellites beaming down, underwater cables, cables over mountains. This is, it's absolutely amazing what's happening. So there is a natural reaction to that because we are kicking and screaming, I will agree with you, becoming more global and international by the fact of the technology. I think you have to remember, it, it too. The reaction to that is nationalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, because you can no longer you can no longer protect physical boundaries the way you once could in the age of the internet and cyber attacks etc and information as i say coming not only out of cables that go under the ocean but from satellites coming from up in the up, you know outside the orbit of the united states of the, of the globe because of that there is this counter reaction where countries
2: are becoming more nationalistic that's one reason, yeah, I was really thinking of the rhetoric more than the reality right,
0: well, remember too, this was called the Space Race, and we were there to
1: beat this evil Soviet Union to right. the moon. It was a competition to get there in one sense, it was because what freaked this th- our military industrial complex to the bone Sputnik was Sputnik, yeah, yeah. and
0: that uh, I, I that Sputnik had more effect on me, so it was pretty nationalistic you know, getting to the moon.
1: No question. America and and we still have that Union. strain in us. But that nationalistic strain, if we don't alleviate it, it's going to spell the end of our species. Yeah. Um, it, either with a nuclear war or climate change or whatever, Either, either, either we are kicking and screaming going to become more of a global intelligence because we now have the technical ability to do that. And today we're going to, if we have time, we'll talk about this company I've mentioned before called Unanimous AI. I'm going to be talking about them in a talk to a salon. It's, it's, it's too magical to even consider, and yet it's happening, mm-hmm. um, uh, which has to do with swarm intelligence. But but the the point is that we may never get past nationalism. I'll agree with you there, uh, Victoria. We, we Our
2: brains may not be capable of it, mm. but we better. I think we are capable of it, but I think unfortunately... It is being reinforced by this sort of backward thinking, but just as we've moved somewhat beyond our homophobia and somewhat beyond our sexism and somewhat beyond our racism, all of which I think are narrow concepts, I think we could go beyond this, uh, intense need to announce ourselves as a particular people as opposed to as human beings.
1: Yeah, that's going to be the tug of war. Um, and it has been actually since uh, we showed up on the planet um, because we're mammals on one level, and mammals are territorial. That's how they survive. Um, we've talked about that. The The lion, the lion, male lion has its pride. It's um, interesting. I believe the female lion is a much better hunter. Which is interesting. Well, it's but,
2: like the women cooking the meals.
1: Yeah, but um, <laughs> but but the, the what will happen is if an innocent little lion cub from another pride wanders by mistake onto another lion's pride, it get the male will kill it immediately. Is it an actual threat? No, but it's perceived as one because because to survive mammals have to be very territorial we are mammals but we also have we've talked about this in our brains the cerebral cortex it's a it's the largest part of our brain which is capable of seeing beyond our own narrow self-interest and realize that it's in our interest it's in our it's in our self-interest this is the golden rule it's in our self-interest to be more open to others rather than to be closed and shut and and, and create borders um whether we do it or not remains to be seen, um, but you're right. The moon landing, Sputnik was uh, the first um, uh, space project that succeeded, um, and then uh, it was the uh, the Russians who sent the U- Yuri Gagarin, right, the first man in space, and that freaked us out because we said, well, wait a minute, if they get control of space, they'll have control of Weapons up there, and then we lose,
2: and it was such a cold war time mm-hmm. that was truly yeah. the nationalistic mentality, like us versus them, like it was some kind of football game, and they scored a couple of touchdowns there, <laughs> true,
1: but when john kennedy who was who was the Camelot story, the young upstart president right mm-hmm. um and let's again, if this sounds sexist, too bad. With one of the, the classiest-looking wives, at a pre, let's let's face it, most presidents and presidents' wives are rather dowdy-looking, you know, throughout history. And here's this John, this immensely handsome man, and this beautiful wife, cultured wife, Jacqueline, and and in his, you know, in his inauguration well i don't know if it was the inauguration or his first state of the union he said by the end of this decade we want to land a man on the moon and when he said it it was nationalistic but it was also kind of spiritual in a Mm -hmm. way you know this is important you know just for who we are right because
2: it was aspirational as opposed to we're going to kick your butt right but it
1: always has that in it uh that that self-defense nature to it um but it, there was a great documentary on recently about the landing and and the surprise part. They were fairly confident they could land someone on the moon. Although they, as much as they had rehearsed this, right? Neil Armstrong, who was piloting, had to make last minute changes because where they were about to land was too rocky. So this was n- this was not a slam dunk. Mm. Number one. Number two, the most dangerous part of the mission. As dangerous as any mission is. I mean, you're you're on a... The rocket ship is, is basically getting up in the air because of a huge explosion. <laughs> well, and there were a lot, lot of those before we got it right. A lot of those before... Right. So... But by the time we launched Apollo 11, we had launched... We had made enough successful launchings that it was... They were confident it was not going to blow up. Yeah. You know, upon takeoff. There were... Pretty confident they could get there. The landing, there was always going to be some improvisation necessary and some things they just couldn't know ahead of time. They landed successfully. The scariest part and this documentary was real. I forget the name of it, but I'm sure you can fund it on YouTube. I thought it was very good. The scariest part was taking off from the moon. Now, there were three astronauts, right? Yeah. It was Neil Armstrong... Uh, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. Michael Collins was the pilot who circled, orbited the moon while Armstrong and Aldrin were on the moon. Um, and the scariest part was when they had to launch from the moon back up to the uh, the, the, the mother ship. That was the part I
0: remember being most tense for me for a, like a 10-year-old. Yeah. It was just,
1: uh, I thought, oh my God, they could be stuck there forever. They could be stuck there forever.
2: And, and <laughs> they, they must said, have thought that, too. I know. Well, they did. I'm and sure. in the
1: documentary, they talked about that. They said they realized that there was a percentage that this thing would, A, would never, and that they would just have to stay there and die. Yeah. There would be no way to get them off of it.
0: <sighs> That was, that to me was like heart stopping. Yeah. It.
1: And, um,. Think of what their families must have gone through at that moment. Ugh. You know, they, they, what was Apollo 13? It was a very good movie, I have to say. Yeah, you know, the Tom Hanks and stuff about the one that where they was, in a way, even more dramatic than the moon landing. Uh, but a, a, an amazing achievement. Um, and, I yeah, I was teaching at a tennis camp, and we were all in a common room watching uh-huh. on a, a little TVs. It was pretty... I just remember just being fascinated that, that with the images, you know, that there's, wait a minute, there's a guy coming down a ladder, <laughs> stepping on the moon.
0: Yeah. And I remember learning years and years later that the uh, computer power that they had was equivalent to an Apple E. Well, to, to, okay. that was
1: what they had available. Another way kind of me. saying it is we all have our smartphones out. This smartphone <laughs> that we're holding is exponentially more powerful than all the computers in Houston. Yeah. At the time of the launch. Pretty amazing. Okay. So, yeah. Um, on one level, we human beings have not progressed very much in terms of the Golden Rule
2: uh-huh.
1: and nationalism, et cetera. But on the other hand, we've made exponential leaps. Well, yeah. we're clever. We're good tool makers.
2: Yes. There,
0: were, yes. there were so many times in my life when I said, oh, yeah, that'll come, but probably not in my lifetime. And right. everything that I've ever imagined has come up to pass in my lifetime.
1: Yeah, well, think of it. <laughs> a, an African-American president with a Muslim yeah. name? Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Never thought it. But um, still haven't had a woman president.
2: That's
1: right. No, but we had a woman get win the popular vote. Yeah, that's true. So we know it can be done. Yep. Uh, no one would be shocked if a woman became president. No. Um,
2: but they'd be happy.
1: But they'd be happy. But you know what? Uh, uh, who, I'll tell you who we'll never see
2: in our lifetime as president: an atheist. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Uh, I don't well, think again, that sort of goes with the narrowness of thinking. Right. That that that's unacceptable. Really? <laughs> what you think in your A head and your atheist heart
0: atheist will not get You
2: know? There. God bless will not America. Get. Yeah. No I no mean, problem. that's just the. That's hypocrisy, right? Really. Well, of course it
0: is. <laughs> I mean, there are, have been hundreds and probably even more congressmen and senators who were, who did not believe in God but would never say that. Right.
2: right. But even more now than in the past. I think it was more acceptable 25 or 30 years ago. No, I don't think uh, so. I mean, well, we depending on where a- you were, in intellectual circles, it was definitely, I mean, I grew up surrounded by atheists. And uh, yeah, in, in college, in it in it it was and you were
1: also in the basement to watch TV. I mean,
2: <laughs> come on. We were a little backwards in some ways, and not in others. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, that, it's all—it's it's huge hypocrisy, but but it's true. I didn't find it as socially unacceptable in the past as I think it is now. Uh, I don't know.
0: So anyway, we almost didn't I, I have a switch. Catholic president.
2: We're going to, when we open up our Wichita
1: Roundtable jukebox, which we love to do during the last half hour of our show. Oh, we have some surprising moon songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One I don't think I've ever heard. <laughs> All right, we'll give, a, we'll, we'll give it a little tease. And by the way, this is, okay, let's, this connects with the smartphone again. First, I want to tell a little anecdote. Um, I was out for dinner last week. Uh, with a former real estate client of mine who's become a friend, and um, and his wife and his daughter. And we were at a restaurant uh, in Ulster County. Nice, right? And I look over at one point, and there's an elderly couple sitting at a table. I'm guessing they were in their mid to late 70s. hmm And I noticed when I looked over, that both of them were staring into their smartphones. <laughs> now that's something you might expect more of millennials, right? Yep. Generation Z. Alright, that's not a big deal, but, I mean, we're out for dinner. People there are out for dinner. It was dinner time. Um, and anyway, I went back to conversing, and then at some point later, I looked back over, and they were still looking at their s- smartphones. Hmm. So I started checking every once in a while. And in the hour that I was there and they were there, I never saw them make eye contact. Wow. And I never saw them move their mouths. I think that's a little sad. Maybe, maybe not. I'm just pointing out, I thought that was rather extreme and interesting because they were So elderly, you would expect that of younger generation.
2: Well, you see it definitely a lot with younger people. But it's also like the conversation that you have over dinner when you're out with your spouse, partner, lover, whatever, is so intimate. You're eating food and you're talking and it may not be deep discourse, But to me, it's almost like animals grooming or something, you know, like primates, you know, like you're talking about the food a little and you are looking at the other people in the restaurant. And then one of you remembers something, you know, you read in the paper or heard and, you know, TV. And there's a kind of warm back and forth talk that is disappearing. Because people also do that at home. If you think they're just doing that in the restaurant, I'm sure they're doing it at home, too. People that can't put their cell phone down when they eat or can't put it in their pocket, people who have to have it on the table are more connected to that than they are to the other human beings around them. So I agree with everything you say, but here's
1: what makes it complex... Ambiguous and interesting. (laughs) Because at the same time that that smartphone is like a bulb, look, what's the easiest way to distract an infant? You know, shake something shiny in its eye, right? Get mesmerized by it. Well, that's us. We're mesmerized by our tools, right? Always have been, by the way. Um, so we're mesmerized by this thing. We get addicted to it. And being addicted is never a good thing because now we've lost our freedom, right? We agree with that. At the same time, that smartphone is a portal to the greatest knowledge and wisdom of all
2: human history. Okay. I actually ride the subway fairly often in New York, and most of the people around me are on their cell phones. So what I like to do is look over and see what they're actually scrolling. And I can assure you, most of them are not doing Internet research. They're checking their email. They're playing a game uh they're they're not looking stuff up Hold they're it. going through some stuff they already have in there
1: <laughs> but that's been true throughout human history. Most people don't do heavy deep research that's not my point. My point is that all technology are two-way streets it's they can they every new technology has led to progress at the same time as it creates new problems, and issues. It's both. You don't get... One without the other. That's the ambiguity. It's not all good right. or all I'm bad. I'm not
2: saying get rid of it. I'm just saying I think it's kind of sad in a restaurant. The same thing in a bar, and I used to like to hang out in bars. But it's also sad when everybody's people, on their device. It's now just at a as a bar. sad when
1: people sit in front of a TV all day. It's just as bad when people sit right. around listening to the I agree. radio all I'm day. I'm not blaming the device, I'm blaming the people. Right. That's <laughs> the point. The point is that the it, technology is an improvement. It is an amazing technology. It do, it is a portal. It If we so choose to it, and by the way, as far as playing games goes, games are one of the three most um, most effective ways that we learn. So um, I'm all for playing games, but um, uh, I want to um, first tell a a, a joke. (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to laugh? No, Ah. because to me, well, I can't. It'll probably be too deep for us (laughs) to laugh, Ron. It's it's, a New York (laughs) New Yorker. You might laugh, (laughs) joke, but my. Prediction, and you know I'm right at least 8% of the time, is that it will bring either an actual physical smile uh-huh. or an internal smile. All right. Okay. Because it's not a Jackie Mason, boom, right in the gut, Don Rickles, Belly laugh. this is you know, Robin Williams, oh, my God, just laugh out loud. I actually think it's a rather clever joke, whoever thought of it. But then I want to get what's really going on here. Okay. You ready? It's a quick yeah. one. So, a friend of mine lives in North Korea. I asked him how it is over there. He said, I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got You got, laugh. got laughter. I say it's better
2: than I thought. <laughs>
0: but, but, I, but I don't better than I, know that, I thought. I don't know that you'd get a laugh from
1: everybody. Well, no, nor should you. It's pretty. Uh, I mean, we, if everybody laughed, it would be something wrong. That's true.
2: Wrong. But. That's a very clever joke. You know, very but, clever. So let's get let's just. It is it, a say. clever joke, and you know what's interesting to me is I often say to people, "How are you doing?" And a lot of people will answer that with, "I can't complain," and right. it always annoys me because I think you can't complain. What is your problem? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> There's a lot going on to complain about. I so. was I always follow that with, but it's early. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. So we really reveal ourselves yes. in what we say to that. But but that is a good one because you know what I like about it is it's so compact. Right. Now it's compact and it's also
1: rather than go laterally, it goes in depth. That's what puns do because the the humor is based on the fact that this phrase, I can't complain. Has more than one meaning, uh-huh. yes. and isn't it interesting? And the part of our brain, because you guys and, and I imagine most of our listeners got it right away.
0: Uh-huh.
2: But think about how complicated that joke is. Yeah, it's a very complicated joke. North yet, Korea sets it up. I mean, it's really it's so tight. It's it's like a haiku or it, something. It you know, I have a friend Soviet who went Union. to North Korea. Boom, we immediately go to uh totalitarian state scary mm-hmm. place people locked up crazy leader whether he's crazy or not but I mean you know we go to all those things and then <laughs> I can't complain becomes like <laughs> East Germany and in uh, the 1970s you know right.
1: so it's a, and and it's it's all around uh ambi- the ambiguity mm-hmm. the ambiguous nature of a, a very simple phrase, I can't <laughs>
2: complain. Right. And the idea also, I love that phrase, I can't, because people often say that I, I can't when they mean I won't. In general, I mean, if I say, I can't talk to you now, it means I really don't want to, I'm busy. Now, if I was stuck in cement or something, <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk to you might mean, I can't make it across you'd the room or the, to, to, the to the phone, that. But but it's like that. The word can't is interesting because mm-hmm. we do use it loosely. I can't do this. I can't do that. Yes, you can. You don't choose to. But in some cases, you can't. You know, <laughs> I'm actually yeah. in solitary in prison. That's where I'm it's, calling it's, you from. It's, you when, when
0: kids say, and they often do, um, can I do this or can I do that? Well, yes, you can, but you may not.
2: Right. Is how right. We, right. we come
0: back with that. Right. Although nobody
2: uses may anymore. I love it. But it's a a locution that's disappearing from the language. As is the word locution. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So um, I
1: guarantee you, as soon as we hear locution, we go back to that that eighth grade English exam that we screwed up.
2: Anyway. (laughs) Like execution.
1: Yes. I've mentioned this book before, The the Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. Complex book, long book. But brilliant. Ian McGilchrist is the author, and he's both a psychiatrist and a literary scholar. Try to find someone who is both of those. Um, it's about the left hemisphere, right hemisphere of the brain, one of my favorite topics. The left hemisphere of our brain is the one that is logical, analytical, sequential, and needs certainty, very focused, in control. The right hemisphere of our brain is the one that is creative, imaginative, likes ambiguity, much more creative. Um the we need both hemispheres. But here's the punchline. Computers are already better at left hemisphere thinking than we are. So by definition, if we're going to be relevant moving forward, we need to focus more on the right hemisphere of our brain. Do something
0: that they can't do.
1: That aren't as good at. And it doesn't right. mean we eliminated left side of our brain because we need it. But we are way, as Michael Chris shows, our culture, ever since we showed up on this planet, way too left hemisphere oriented. Which is national. Nationalism is left hemisphere. It's control. Mm-hmm. It's get rid of all uncertainty. Right? Now, I'm fast. I was always fascinated. We were taught so little about the Italian Renaissance. How did this happen? You know? Mm-hmm. Well, oh, okay, okay. So so, so, some really good artists painted on ceilings. You know, it's a lot more than that. <laughs> but the Gilchrist really gets at it in an interesting way that has to do with the joke I just yeah. said and ambiguity. Here's what he writes. The Renaissance is also the time when not just apparently opposed or contradictory ideas could be entertained together, when not just ambiguity and multiplicity of meaning and language are rife, from the obvious love of puns, conceits, and so on, to the whole array of fruitful ambiguity in which Elizabethan poetry adheres and consists, but when emotions are experienced as mixed. Mixed emotions were not commonly appreciated in the ancient world, and that sadness and pleasure intermingle was hardly accepted until the Renaissance.
2: That's a really amazing sentence. Yeah, Yeah, and one wonders if you could Actually prove it to be true if you went into the medieval period and looked to see if there were such well, mixtures.
1: We understand that he's making a, po- a polemical point, right. which may not be literally true, but has a lot of truth to it. Mm-hmm. We don't know until we investigate it. But think about that, that the idea that sadness and pleasure could intermingle. Was hardly accepted until the Renaissance. The Middle Ages, what they recently called the Dark Ages, is because the Catholic Church ruled with an iron thumb. It told you what you could accept as truth and what you couldn't. And the only individual humans who were even cap- allowed to learn and read were um, were, were the religious monks, etc., who were in monasteries.
0: Not much different and than they were North told Korea what today. To read.
1: They were told what to read and how to interpret it. Mm-hmm. But but the fact is there was no ambiguity. Right. Ambiguity could put you to death. But in
2: Greek tragedy you get ambiguity.
1: Yes, you do. You get some. Um, I would agree with you there. Um, but the re- one of the keys to the rena- Italian Renaissance was the rediscovery of all that Greek literature, which had been right. literally right. buried in catacombs of monasteries by the religious leaders. They literally took those manuscripts. There were no books. they were manuscripts. Um, and they buried them in the catacombs of these monasteries. And one of the main reasons the Renaissance exploded onto the scene was a progressive pope sent an emissary out to find interesting manuscripts that he knew were buried. Mm. And he came back with one that
2: quickly got copied by hand by others, and started spreading around Italy. Well, you know, what's interesting also about the Renaissance is we often think of it as an art term, but it's the period in which there was enormous exploration. And I think that physical exploration of starting to send the ships out and discover other lands, Mm -hmm. that, that, that must have opened their minds. And then it was also a time of... Uh, the telescope and the microscope. Yep. So that, so that in science there was this ability to break through barriers, physically breaking through barriers, sailing oceans, uh, and I think that, so there was something in the air about expansion. And so it would be expansion in thinking, expansion in space, expansion in artistic product. And so if we're going to have a second renaissance, which is a
1: clear Capability, given globalization, the World Wide Web, infinitely more access to knowledge, wisdom, and collaboration, right? Mm -hmm. Before the Internet, yeah, we had telephones, I get it. We had fax machines. But if you were someone studying at Stanford, you would have to go to a library to find the thinking of people who were studying the same thing in Moscow yep. and in New Delhi. Now, and you might you have, have to read it. those
2: other languages to get it. Right.
1: Now it's instant you have instant you can literally have a conference with those people in real time. Mm-hmm. This is big this is big deal stuff at the same time that we're having the counter reaction to nationalism fear of immigrants Reactionary politics, etc. It all comes together. But remember, during the Italian Renaissance, the main financiers of the artists and the philosophers were the Medicis, who
2: were cutthroat, uh, maniacally control freak politicians. Mm-hmm. Right. Business was generating more and more income; therefore, they could support these big projects. These, whether they were building projects or whatever, there, there was a. a a sudden growth in wealth in that period. Uh, and the aristocracy tended to be educated, and they had tutors, and they read in a number of languages. And the monarchs became more intelligent. So Elizabeth I, uh, in Shakespeare's time, could read about five languages. Mm. She could read Greek, Latin, uh, German.
1: Um, but that information and knowledge was con- well-contained within the royal and religious leaders. And, it and was the, and the aristocracy
2: in general, which okay. is always a small group. You're right. I mean, it wasn't; it, it didn't percolate down.
1: It wasn't until the Renaissance that this, the sense that anyone could be an individual even became a reality. I wonder when the Enlightenment became a phrase. Later. Later. And the when Enlightenment is a in. bad firm because it was very unenlightened in many ways. It was, enlight- <laughs> it was enlightened in terms of scientific knowledge. But it was based on logic and sequence, um, and uh, that was very limited. It created the Industrial Revolution. It created uh, industry. It created, along with great science, uh-huh. it created pollution. It uh-huh. created assembly lines. It created horribly polluted cities.
2: But you could say that our government came out of the Enlightenment, Enlightenment thinking, the it Constitution, did. the Declaration of Independence, the, it's the rights of very individuals, much out of the 18th century thinkers, a lot of whom were rationalists, but humane rationalists.
1: True. But when the year 1900 hit and the quantum was discovered and Freud publishes the Interpretation of Dreams, that all got undercut, and then now you mm-hmm. have Einstein and quantum theory right. and the transistor and the computer and the It was 1960s, enlightened for its time. <laughs> it was enlightened for its time. So we need a new enlightenment, a new renaissance, mm-hmm. and you know maybe we get there. But McGilchrist's point, I'll just finish with this, and this is from his book, The Master and His Emissary. Because of its incomplete and unresolved, rather than on explicitness and resolution of pro- contradictory propositions in the pursuit of clarity and certainty... The right hemisphere of the brain is congenial to ambiguity and the union of opposites where that of the left hemisphere cannot afford to be. So the joke that I'm happy you laughed at. (laughs) A friend of mine lives in North Korea. I asked him how it is over there. He said, I can't complain. (laughs) That's without the right hemisphere of the brain, we can't laugh at that. Mm. And kicking and screaming our educational system, if it doesn't, which is totally left hemisphere. How do we know that? Even today, in 2019, you know, I talk to people I know who have kids in grade schools. It's memorization and regurgitation of the knowledge. That's all left hemisphere. How much of our educational system is based on creativity, ambiguity, imagination?
2: Well, it should be much more in that direction. But I would hold that that left brain that gathers all kinds of information and has all kinds of data and teaches you how to do math quickly in your head, etc., is a nice base for the creative side of your brain to play with. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, as McIlchrist shows in this book, and he's a a neuroscientist and psychiatrist as well as a literary scholar, is that if if we're not really training ourselves, what happens is the right hemisphere first gets the information. It's more closely connected to the unconscious. Um, it's a big picture thinker. Then it hands it off to the left hemisphere, which interprets it. Right? Because we need some clarity, you know? Unfortunately, the left hemisphere, being a bit of a control freak, its nature, doesn't pass the information back to the right hemisphere, which is why we get the politics that we do. We don't get creative thinkers in politics. We don't get, we don't get, um, for every, school that is a Montessori-type school where they're trying to pull out of each student what makes them tick and what turns them on, you have exponentially more educational systems that tell people, here are the rules, you better follow them if you want a good grade. So the point is, yes, we need, the, the right brain passes this big picture, ambiguous creative impulses to the left hemisphere for interpretation. Unfortunately, particularly in our culture, it tends not to get handed back. And so we get stuck in a very confined, contained, overly logical, where you can't have a sense of humor. I wonder you can't if, get a joke like that. I wonder if you told that joke, but didn't set it up as a joke,
0: if people would mm. find it funny, if it weren't set up as a joke.
1: And that setup alerts the right hemisphere.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it gets only, all tingly. Okay, see, <laughs> here yeah. comes a joke. Because, right. Yeah.
1: Because only, and, and think about it. When, when I told the joke, you guys laughed immediately, oh, within a split second. Yeah. Okay. The left hemisphere doesn't work that fast. The left <laughs> hemisphere takes something, and I'm, it's, an, it's an important ability. The left hemisphere takes something, looks at it, decides whether it's dangerous or not, and then interprets it. Yeah, but you laughed within a split second. That's right hemisphere. So when you say there's a joke coming, that's a tip off. Okay, I'm going to flip over to the right hemisphere in my brain here.
0: Right. When you go to see a comedian, you go ready to laugh. Mm -hmm. So you know they might not be as funny if you weren't expecting them
1: to be funny. And the the great comedian knows how to exploit that. Yeah. Uh, The not as good comedian, even though the person we go there with that sometimes we're disappointed. (laughs) So at any rate. Some grist for the mill, some food for thought. And I'm getting hungry, (laughs) so let's take a break.
2: (laughs)
0: I can't sail my yacht, he's taken everything i got, all I've
1: got's this sunny afternoon. Uh, this is still the Woodstock Roundtable, Doug Runthe, your host. Two illustrious co-hosts today are our Poet Laureate Victoria Sullivan, which means we get a poem relatively soon, that'll be good for the right hemispheres of our brain, and mm-hmm. our on-air Radio Woodstock Weekend Warrior, Ron Van Warmer, who, when... Victoria and I leave the premises at 9 o'clock. You will continue with the music. I will indeed. Hey, look who's arrived, the sultan himself. Hey, Gus, how are you? Okay. Yeah. Glad to see you got your saxophone in working order.
0: Yes, it is.
1: Yeah. So anyway, we're going to now talk, uh, let's see, what are we going to talk about? Um, Ah, let's talk about uh, journalism. Uh, which is going to a big show. Uh, Starbucks will stop selling newspapers. Hmm. Okay, now, um, they, they won't tell why, but obviously, they're not selling as many. Um, and it's the quintessential Starbucks experience. Walk in, order a hot cup of coffee, sit back with a newspaper. Or your phone. Well, now, obviously, people are on their phone. Um not everybody's on their computer, said one person, especially for a certain age demographic. An older demographic may not come in with their iPad or computer. They will come in with a book or want to read the paper. I just mentioned being in a restaurant, an elderly couple in their mid-late 70s, never looked at They were on their smartphones the whole time. Um, daily newspaper circulation in the United States, including both digital and print platforms, down about 10% from last year. Yeah. Um it's interesting as to where we get our news but again you see it's it's more complex than we want to think. Everyone complains about Facebook properly so uh and their news service, but the fact is, let's be honest, the New York Times great newspaper in many ways does not ha- has a viewpoint. Oh, yeah. Including on their objective news. You don't learn all about the world from reading the New York Times. You get one slant. But the trend that is troublesome is the monopoly trend, um, which is going on throughout the world, but certainly in the age of journalism. Uh, actually, the New York Times is still a family-owned newspaper, but they have stockholders who aren't family-owned who put a lot of pressure on them. The Washington Post, seminal newspapers, now owned by Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact of the matter is that more and more information is being controlled by fewer and fewer monopolies. However, I still have faith in this smartphone because they can't stop me from doing... For example, I do a podcast with Gerald Salenti, a trend expert, right? Mm -hmm. And he's his expertise is global news, right? As opposed to just getting it from the American viewpoint. So every day I... Go through articles from Asia Times, The Guardian in England, mm-hmm. Russia Today, very good newspaper, hmm. good journalism, um, Al Jazeera, Yeah. Um, what are some of the others? I do Reuters, I do AP, I do the New York Times. Um, Philadelphia Inquirer is a good paper. Which one? Philadelphia, Philadelphia Inquirer. Inquirer. The the point is that before the age of the internet, I would have to, even if I went to a library, unless I went down to New York City, probably the New York Public Library, where could I find all these things Mm. in one place? Now, this little thing that comes, that can fit in my pocket, I can get all of it. Now, most people are discouraged from doing that because we all have a tendency to favor convenience and habit. And so, I understand that a lot of people love the habit, I used to, of sitting down with a cup of coffee and maybe a bagel or a baguette and the paper. Yeah. And as Marshall McLuhan once said brilliantly, we don't read a newspaper, we bathe in it. A newspaper is a tactile experience, as is reading print. And there's something very comforting to that. But it's not necessarily the best way to get information. Because print is also, like the scientific enlightenment, very narrow in the way it communicates information. Yes, it gives you the nice feeling of a physical space. But this smartphone and the Internet and the World Wide Web, which is much more chaotic, less organized, right? Mm -hmm. But much more open boundaries, much more capability of finding new insights and different perspectives if we take the time to do that. So I get why people are angry with Starbucks. And obviously, Starbucks thinks they can make more money taking the
2: newspapers out of there.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, Um, what I
2: found interesting here is when they asked Starbucks why they did it, they didn't give a reason. But then they got somebody who there was a spokesman. And uh, he says, well, the stores are making adjustments to our Portfolio based on changing customer behavior, and I love the sort of soft, not quite double speak there. But the people aren't buying them. Is basically what he's saying. If you're changing it on the basis of they're they're changing their portfolio, and they're also taking off um, coffee beans and grab foods. So mm-hmm. obviously those aren't selling either. And the thing is, I wish they could say that. In my neighborhood, there were two Starbucks, one at 115th and one at 111th. So they're nearby on Broadway. And I can remember the original Starbucks when they came in. And one of the things I loved about it, I did like to go there and buy a paper and get a coffee. But I loved, at that point, they had big leather chairs. Mm. And they had a bunch of them. And they had floor lamps. And it was like being in a very fancy living room. And they had beautiful murals over the... 20 or so years that they've been dominating that market, they've changed their looks and they've got rid of some of those chairs because people just went in there and fell asleep and, you know, they didn't want people there all day, but they've been getting less and less well decorated and recently they redid the one closest to me at 115th Street. And I don't even want to go in it anymore. It's become this sort of corporate looking. Mm-hmm. It has fewer seats. They don't really want you to sit there. It used to be large numbers of people took their laptops um, and, you know, wrote there and readers and writers. I mean, writers, typically, a lot of them like to go out of the house to write. Okay? Mm. They like to write in a public place with a cup of coffee. And it's like, they that's not what Starbucks wants. Originally, they had that West Coast, we're hip, we're cool, you know, sit in a good-looking place, have a comfortable chair, drink our coffee, which we'll make overpriced because we deserve it, and that was okay. You knew when you were buying that overpriced coffee that you could sit there for half an hour an hour. uh,
0: The best Starbucks that I remember was one in a bookstore. It -hmm. was in the bookstore. Right. And that was great. Mm -hmm.
2: And and that's disappearing, too. I think Barnes & Noble used to have a lot of spaces, little nooks you could sit and read in. They've gotten rid of almost all of them.
0: That's
2: sad. It's like the public space. They no longer want you to get comfortable there. Also, more and more restaurants in my neighborhood have very few seats because students just want to grab their food and leave.
1: Okay. So now, to me, the most interesting principle, I was never good at science as a kid. I'm fascinated as an adult. As a kid, I was encouraged not Discouraged because I wasn't good at it. The most fascinating principle in science to me, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So, Starbucks gets more corporate because they can maximize profits that way. But that opens up a niche. Rough Draft on John Street in Kingston. Mm -hmm. Very successful bookstore. Local bookstore. And what do they do? They have a coffee bar You can order a beer, and people go there and they hang out. They're encouraged to hang out. They've got, but what they did, which is really smart, in addition to a couple of comfortable chairs, they put bigger tables so people may you can sit there and read your own or you get in a conversation with somebody. So, uh, the Golden Notebook here in Woodstock is doing much better. Mm -hmm. The point is that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Um, So some of the smart millennials are taking advantage of the fact of what Starbucks is doing.
2: Well, certainly in in Kingston, and I agree, rough draft, but I think that they're not on the – I'm afraid that's not the coming way.
1: They're not the only ones who are having success. In other words, local bookstores are making a bit of a comeback. Now, I'm not – I am not saying that they are an equal force the the monopolies are, are, are definitely have more of the force but the point is we do have alternatives mm-hmm. and um we just have to seek them out um but
2: uh oh the other thing that i thought was really false in in the article on starbucks uh they talked to someone at the new york times who of course didn't want to admit that things are falling apart and said well of course we're upset that starbucks they had originally had a a exclusive contract with the new york times up until uh 2010, mm-hmm. the only newspaper that Starbucks sold was the New York Times. Mm. And that was cool for the New York Times and kind of Starbucksy, you know, like that's all people here want to read. But, you know, then they went over to, to, to carrying other ones. So uh their, one of their spokespersons said, well, of course, we're disappointed because, you know, there's 8,600 Starbucks in the country <laughs> and, and none of them are going to be selling the Times as of September. He said, but there's lots of other newspaper outlets. That is simply not true. They are closing, too. The one in a subway, my subway stop at Columbia hmm. closed. In um, All the little ones. My neighborhood used to have scads of little stores where you could go in, buy gum, buy candy, buy newspapers. Right. Those stores are dying out. Those stores are disappearing. I I can search in in Manhattan. I can search and have a hard time finding a New York Times for sale. So, I mean, that guy was just, you know, blowing it out. I don't know where. But, you know, to say, but we have plenty of outlets. You do not have the number of outlets you had before. People don't want to carry newspapers, period.
1: Now, I've said this before. Those of us who love newspapers bemoan all this. (laughs) But let's take a little reality check here. How many freaking millions of trees I were destroyed were gonna <laughs> to create one edition of the New York yeah, Times? so true. How much gasoline and, and oil, uh, gasoline had to be used to truck the damn things everywhere around? Let's get a grip. There were, I loved Aren't sitting down. Are we
2: recycling down. newspapers? Oh yeah. Uh, yes, but, we are.
1: Okay, but how about all the energy it took, all the trees you destroyed, all the energy it took to cut down those trees, turn them into pulp, take them to a big factory, turn them into newspapers, truck them okay. to the various I'd like locations. To see the, the you can't recycle on us. that.
2: Well, you, you, okay, you can't recycle that, but I think far worse is plastic bags and plastic bottles. Hold it. You're just, that, that's off the subject.
1: <laughs> the fact of the matter is, at, this is complexity again, ambiguity, uh-huh. why we laugh at jokes. Right. At the same time that I can bemoan the, 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 the total almost destruction of the newspaper industry and that pleasure of sitting down with a cup of coffee and bathing in that newspaper. At the same time, I can understand how much environmental destruction that was causing all those years.
2: Well, it's going to They're taste. both true.
1: <laughs> Don't they grow trees for newspapers? They should. I think they do. I think they do. Well, you can't. You, you're you still know. using all that well, fossil yeah, fuel. I, I to I cut know. down the trees, turn them into that. pulp, run the factories and truck them all over the but you could If you've ever gone past paper a paper factory, it's if, pretty flat. If,
2: if you were if you were into <laughs> solar and wind, you you could do it without fossil fuel. But
1: we haven't. <laughs> and the fact
2: of the matter is that with this smartphone
1: and it's not as tactile an experience, but with this but it's but it's a much more open creative experience. I have a portal here to thousands of newspapers. Okay, and sources I never would have considered, like the Asia Times and Russia Today and the Guardian. But think and about Great Britain. monogamy. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that in ages. <laughs> yeah.
2: Some of us don't need a thousand newspapers or a thousand men. You know, one good man, one good newspaper. So wait
1: a minute. Now you're 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 saying there's an equivalent. You're, you're equating men to newspapers. <laughs> yes,
2: I'm equating the concept of variety of infin- and infinity to uh, a single reliable source. But if you only read
0: one newspaper, you're only getting one point of view.
2: Well, I think the New York Times has a fairly sophisticated point of view, and they do have their own. No, it. uh,
1: You couldn't be more wrong. The New York Times (laughs) led us into Iraq.
2: One woman, one crazy, one one crazy crazy woman who the
1: editors allow control the headlines for a month. Yeah,
2: but you know what? Even so, at that time, (laughs) I knew I read it then, and I knew she was wrong. And they had other people writing. For some reason, you that
1: Nicolas Maduro is a dictator.
2: He's not.
1: He's the duly elected president of Venezuela, and there were international Observers who showed it.
2: Listen, can't you be a dictator and I elected? like
1: the New York Times. I read the New York Times. I consider it an important source of information. But don't tell me that it has a monopoly on the truth. It doesn't. It is prejudiced. It is okay. limited. I
2: didn't say it had a monopoly on the truth. I said it had a sophisticated, somewhat broad view. And it's
1: also too often uh, just simply reiterates what what the government puts out. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Analyze it. I, I do a trends. I do a trans podcast. We got to study this stuff. Yeah, I read I mean, different
0: newspapers. I read different magazines, but they all really, pretty much, carry my point of view. Yeah, I rarely watch Fox. I rarely read um, the Post. You know,
1: I'm. I, I tend to read those papers that agree with me philosophically. Right, but you know what you could, uh, I like to do is I like to go on YouTube and 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 listen to certain debates. Yeah. Um, com you know conversations, etc, and I think it's listen, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a point of view and and you know and I'm going to read much progressive newspapers more than I'm going to read conservative newspapers. Right. but the fact of the matter is that no one source has a monopoly on the truth yeah. and
2: they all we all have, just as we as human
1: beings have limited perspectives.
2: Yeah, right. right, but since we know we have limited perspectives, one of the reasons one makes a a commitment, let's just say to a particular source is that if you are a thinking person, you have read around a little, and you have found that for you, this one has more compelling arguments or it has why. more interesting writers, but they do have the op ed page, and they sometimes do publish things that are quite different. And I really followed the lead-up to the war. I followed it very carefully, the, the Iraqi war. I followed that. And there was plenty of material in the Times and elsewhere that was counter that march. But it was For some old... reason, that particular tune uh, started headline to dominate. Headline after the...
1: headline about Saddam Hussein and, and, and weapons of mass destruction, which was a total lie.
2: But they actually acknowledged sometimes that it wasn't clear, and they had the whole. They name led the thing.
1: drumbeat to war. They, I there was
2: a s- single female reporter. No, who had this was the, the editorial
1: board that makes the decision. The editorial board decides what the headlines are. They know what the influence is. I don't is. think
2: they said, "Let's go to war." They are
1: part of. Excuse me. They're part. I, I like the New York Times basically, but don't think they're not part of the military-industrial establishment because they are.
2: I think sometimes
1: they are. At any rate, fortunately, we're going to change the subject and get to poetry and music when we come back. We'll celebrate ambiguity at a high level. One, two, three, four.